This is Southern Arch Heretic, Shifting the Burden, Arguing the Elements. We start to address each element and the proof presented. I'm Kit Rogers, and I have some questions. Welcome back to my Shifting the Burden series, where the proof for the existence of God is placed into a criminal trial setting, and the burden is on the believer to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. The non-believer is presumed correct in our exercise. How does the evidence hold up? Let's explore it. In the last episode, we listed the eight elements needed to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt by the believers. Let's start with the first one. Element 1. God created the universe. The big one. This element really sets the tone for the others, doesn't it? Admittedly, it's clearly possible to believe in a God that didn't create the earth. Non-creator gods are common throughout history. The idea of the creator God existing as the only God, as well as being a lover interposer, although common today, is just one evolution of the understanding of God or gods. But with that in mind, let's look at the arguments as they apply to this element. Potentially every believer's argument put forward in this series either directly or indirectly claims to offer evidence of a creator God. Let's review the arguments and weigh the reliability of the evidence and proof to determine whether the believers have met their burden and proven that God created the universe beyond a reasonable doubt into a moral certainty. The arguments presented are the cosmological, teleological, transcendental, ontological, and Christological arguments. Clearly, any reliable evidence relevant to this first element, at best, can only prove a deist God, and does nothing to prove anything regarding Jesus, or heaven, or sins, or divine tinkering of any kind. If there were jury instructions for lesser-included gods, this might be one included in that instruction. For example, if the prosecution has proven beyond a reasonable doubt that a god created the universe, you may find that a creator god exists, but still have reservations about some of the remaining elements. If you still have reservations about some of those other elements, of course you must find for the defense, the non-believers. In no way am I conceding that there is proof of a deist creator God, but it is arguably more feasible than the Christian God. After all, to prove the Christian God, the believers must offer convincing reliable evidence to satisfy the other seven elements to a moral certainty as well. The cosmological, teleological, transcendental, and ontological arguments directly address the origins of the universe and propose that it was created by an all-powerful creator God. These arguments have absolutely nothing to do with Jesus as the Jewish Messiah or as the Son of God. They do nothing to address any claims of virgin birth. They neither confirm nor disprove the resurrection or the assertion that Jesus will return. Nothing in these arguments suggests an interested God or a God in need of worship. Nothing in these arguments suggests that he answers prayers or helps your great aunt recover more quickly from her cataract surgery. 
These arguments aren't concerned with heaven or hell or sin. I just wanted to be clear that these four arguments only deal with the first element. Did God create the universe? What is the evidence? The cosmological argument provides that the study of our surrounding universe leads us to believe that there must be a creator God. The basic premise, once again, is that all things that exist had a beginning and that all things that begin have a cause. Since the universe had a beginning, there must be a cause. Since science has yet to offer a convincing explanation for what existed prior to the universe coming into being, it's obvious that an all-powerful God must be responsible. We covered the model that modern promoters of the cosmological approach attempt to disseminate, which is that science has proven with the Big Bang Theory that the universe came into being from nothingness, and so proves the existence of God. The presupposition is that something simply can't come from nothing, and so there must be an original mover. The original cause must exist without a cause, and so must be an all-powerful, infinite creator God. Why infinite? Because otherwise there must be an explanation for who created the creator. Of course, if we can fathom an infinite person of sorts, since we are created in his image and all, why can't we fathom an infinite nothing, or an infinite process that we haven't discovered yet? I can't escape the notion that we just have a desire to anthropomorphize everything. It must be part of our species' survival instinct to believe we are the center of the universe and all things came into being solely for us to exist and have a purpose. I mean, it's unmitigated hubris, but that will never give the believer any pause. Not if they believe they're doing God's work. I offered what I think is at least an entertaining alternate hypothesis for the nothingness prior to the Big Bang in the Cosmological Argument episode. There are plenty of hypotheses, presented by actual scientists as well, that oddly enough also require no supernatural prodding. My position is that for the Cosmological Argument to carry any weight at all, you must accept the premise that Humans are incapable and will be incapable in the future of developing a better understanding of the origins of our universe beyond what we currently know, specifically if we keep using the scientific methods, which ironically earned us the knowledge that allows us to discuss this issue in the first place. Pursuant to this argument, we have our answer. God. Look no further. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Matthew chapter 6 verse 33. I can't recite this verse without singing the melody. If you're the product of Catholic school, you're probably singing it as well. 
Allelu, Alleluia. I don't think I need to remind you that we discover new things every day. Clinging to some scientific evidence to further your non-scientific argument is not only hypocritical, but possibly disingenuous. My questions to anyone espousing this argument would probably be intended to challenge their credibility and to demonstrate their bias. I would specifically want to know their position on faith and whether or not they felt any duty to spread their particular faith. You may be surprised. I doubt you will that most anyone who argues for the existence of God approaches it from a religious worldview. Generally, those that make this cosmological argument are no different and view the universe through the same believer's lens. Although, and to be fair, as I stated before, the cosmological argument only addresses the Creator God and so has been postulated by philosophers from other religions and philosophical backgrounds throughout history, not only Christians. Most experts in cosmology would agree that we are still working on our understanding of our universe's origins, which is why scientists continue to do scientific work. If we knew the answers, there'd be no reason to raise questions or test hypotheses. That's why faith and divine revelation are so dangerous. It requires no evidence and no testing. It presumes an answer that cannot be questioned. Folks, that's not proof. It is counterproductive to the search for true evidence and in some ways reaffirms the arguably immoral or at the very least unethical teaching from God in Genesis. God's message to Adam and Eve, and so vicariously to the rest of us now mortal humans because his punishment was to take away our access to the tree of life, was clear. We human beings know enough. Inquiry is dangerous. It draws his ire, and his wrath is wraith. The teleological argument is the intelligent design argument. If you recall, in the earlier episode, we included the watchmaker analogy and the mousetrap analogy. The postulate is that based upon observations of our universe, we can deduce that an intelligent designer is involved. Do you remember the analogy of recognizing a watch on the beach compared to a rock? It would, of course, be obvious that the watch was designed and created by an intelligent agent when compared to the rock. I always found this argument ironic in that it's ultimately intended to prove that an intelligent designer also designed the rock. When I stare at the intricacies of a flower or an insect and the perfect balance of their relationship, I just know that there must be an intelligent designer behind its beauty and perfection. Accidents can't produce this perfection. If that sounds like a quote from a Christian apologist, it's because it could be.
but it's not. It's just my impression of what a believer must think. This is basically the irreducible complexity argument. The mousetrap analogy is intended to show proof of this argument. If you take any of the individual pieces of a working mousetrap away, the mousetrap can't serve its intended function, and so is irreducibly complex. Small incremental changes cannot account for this, and so evolution is disproven, and an intelligent designer becomes necessary. I presented to you an argument related to spandrels and the formation of superfluous and seemingly unnecessary characteristics. I provided an anecdotal quote in which a mousetrap was dismantled by a high school student and the individual parts were combined to accomplish a different function, i.e. a catapult. There are plausible, testable, scientific explanations available to us, and yet there is still so much more for us to discover. The fact that we can't explain everything is the precise motivation for scientific inquiry and scientific hypotheses and should not relegate us to the untestable leap that is the, oh well then it must be, faith in an all-powerful, all-knowing, infinite creator and site-managing designer. Why must we view everything that is beautiful or meaningful to our senses as being created? How is this anything more than a cop-out and anthropomorphism run amok? Since we make things, all things must be made. I mean, we are the center of the universe and God created it specifically for us. When I get to this point in the thought process, one word comes to mind. Faith. We must always leap to presumptions and assumptions that include a human-like overseer. The second prong to this argument is that of fine-tuning. This is the wrench-in-the-gumbo argument. If anything was different, we wouldn't exist. So there must be someone with their hands on the knobs, like a 12-year-old with a ham radio trying to tune in on a frequency from afar. The apologists tend to lean hard into this argument with mathematical facts and probabilities. It makes it sound very enlightened. When we see the odds are a gigazillion to one that our atmosphere is made up of the exact percentages of breathable elements for our existence, or that the probability of consciousness is some unfathomable number, it makes it seem like an impossibility for it to accidentally occur. And it is. That's the problem with the argument. It's based on a complete misunderstanding of evolution and natural processes. Natural selection, randomness, and the passing on of characteristics is a slow and incremental process. Although not controlled like a marionette by a puppet master, it's still not accidental. Randomness is not equal to accidentalness. Let me repeat that. Randomness is not equal to to accidentalness. Why is it so difficult to understand the complexities in our universe as being naturally developed or evolved? If something evolves from simple to complex, then the fact that it is complex only suggests that it has evolved from something simpler and has been evolving for a significant amount of time. If I suggest that a molecule of water is made up of two atoms of hydrogen and one atom of oxygen, no one will disagree. 
If I suggest that hydrogen and oxygen both exist in the universe outside of their combination into water, no one will disagree. Am I missing something? We know that other elements combine at atomic levels to create functional molecules that combine to create functional stuff. Stating the probability of the existence of water if hypothetically the balance of hydrogen and oxygen on our planet and in our atmosphere were somehow different proves nothing. It's just another way of saying, if things were different, they would be different. And since they aren't, God. Even if you take the crawfish out, I'd eat that gumbo. I assume there's some Louisiana hot sauce available. How can there be objective morals if there's no celestial rule maker? If there is no God to define certain human actions as objectively moral or immoral, how can we trust that we're acting in a moral manner? Thankfully, we have the transcendental argument or moral argument to show us how we just can't be sure of our morals without a superterrestrial tyrant's definition of what's right and wrong. The sole reasoning in this proof is that without an all-powerful babysitter who has set defined boundaries and rules of behavior, humans would be unable to comprehend which actions are objectively moral or immoral. I picture a giant nun in the sky, tightly gripping a ruler angrily raised up near shoulder level, her eyes set upon me with intense scrutiny, her face which is scowled in a hateful knowing glare only one or two measures of that ruler away from mine, the smell of her coffee breath adds weight to her accusation of my infraction of the moral code. For not uh, a genuflecting uh, before entering the pew, that befit a handwritten, numbered, printed lines of Jesus died for me and I can't be bothered to bend the knee in his presence. Then a swift slap of the ruler across my knuckles, just for good measure. Lesson learned. I guess that's what folks need. People need defined rules to not behave like uncivilized imbeciles. Holy shit. No, this is literally holy shit. Holy bullshit. A bunch of holy bullshit. I suppose the Ten Commandments are a good Christian example of objective rules defined by God. Let's take a look at them. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. These commandments, I would assume, must be viewed as perfect laws given to us directly by God. I see them in government buildings and courthouses everywhere I go. I know that the posting of the Ten Commandments in public places is allegedly a point of contention, 
but it doesn't appear to be much of one, at least not where I live. Are these objectively moral? The first four are just demands of loyalty to him. That's 40% of the rules. How is that objectively moral? The fifth rule in this divinely intelligent list is to be good to your parents. That seems like a no-brainer. More times than not, they've probably been good to you with the love and the food and the shelter and the whatnot. Then we have a prohibition on murder. I guess if God orders you to kill innocent men, women, and children, it isn't murder. Because, whoo, man, does that omniscient, omnipotent, loving, and forgiving God go to town on ordering some killing? That's just confusing. And I'm not afraid to say it. No cheating on your husband or wife, no stealing, and no lying. Complete the second five. I think the second five rules can arguably be viewed as objectively moral, whatever that means. I think perhaps they should be viewed as subjectively moral, but not subjectively original and definitely unnecessarily chiseled into a stone tablet. I'm not so sure about number 10. Why can't we covet? It's probably not the healthiest psychologically to constantly want what someone else has at least if it coincides with dissatisfaction with your own wife or your own ass, using biblical terminology. However, coveting seems to be the grease in the wheel of American capitalism. Hard to preach, thou shalt not covet, and the prosperity theology in the same sermon without being obviously hypocritical or maybe ironic, trying to be kind, We've already discussed how irony often seems to be lost on the believer. Although, I'm certain this particular irony is preached constantly and to large congregations. Just tune into Joel Osteen for a heavy dose of said irony. For those who don't know what prosperity theology is, it's the teaching I hear most often from television evangelists like Joel Osteen. By no means am I trying to draw attention to this particular charlatan. I just see him on television, and so he unfortunately is most likely to exist in our collective subconscious, filed under famous preacher. Jesus wants you to have a nice truck and a nice house. If you pray and tithe to the church, you can have that and more. Or just try this miracle spring water. Sorry, that commercial gets me every time. I received and drank Peter Popoff's Miracle Spring Water, and the next day I received a check for $35,000. That's all the detail you need. Jesus just sends you a check, I guess. This fucker's name is Peter Popoff. No, really. <laughs> Look, I may write Peter Popoff for some free Miracle Popcorn, but I wouldn't expect a significant amount of money in the mail after eating each and every burnt microwaved kernel for insurance. I wonder who Jesus banks with. Anyway, coveting seems essential to this ministry. Irony again escapes the believers. Didn't Jesus specifically say something about it being easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? Seems like I remember something like that. Camels are pretty big. I saw one at the Fentress County Fair.
That brings us to my old favorite, the ontological argument. I'm not going to further acknowledge the ontological argument. (laughs) It's specifically an attempt, and a poor one at that, by St. Anselm and everyone that follows his lead, to pose some sort of philosophical conundrum where God must exist because we have defined him as the most powerful and greatest being imaginable. Existing in reality is greater than existing in only our imagination, and so to avoid a contradiction, the most powerful and greatest being imaginable must exist in reality. It honestly makes me feel stupid trying to argue with this. And it's not because it's a valid argument and difficult to contend with. It's because it's just blatantly a puzzle put together purposefully to prove that God exists. It's not a postulation based on observation or any evidence at all. In fact, it's devoid of evidence completely. You as a juror should not even consider this argument in that your job is to judge the reliable evidence that is offered to prove the elements for the existence of the Christian God. There is no evidence in this argument. And besides, I find it to be silly. I'm moving on. What can the Christological argument offer us as it relates to the first element? Besides the fact that there is nothing reliable about any portion of the Bible, and you shouldn't really consider it when deliberating, this argument does very little to prove a creator. Yahweh, the creator, is just necessary for Jesus to be his son. Christianity is about Jesus not the Jewish God Yahweh, just ask St. Paul. Since this argument also includes the biblical argument, I suppose we can refer to the Genesis story. But no educated Christian apologist ever goes there. I know that a large portion of our population literally believes the Bible stories, which means they literally have not read them in order. There is simply no way to get past the contradictions. I have never met a self-proclaimed, devout Christian that didn't refer to certain verses of the Bible to prove some point or to support their instruction or advice. I've also never met a self-proclaimed, devout Christian that ever quoted the verses that specifically describe the horrible, incestuous, genocidal, maniacally sadist acts of the loving God that guides them. How can we pick and choose? It's either God's Word or it's not. The parts we ignore are because the acts and lessons within them are viewed as unacceptable and brutish, to say the least, in our modern society. That is due to secular influence, not religious influence. The social evolution of the religious believers to recognize certain scientific principles is based upon the secular communities putting their foot down on the nonsense and the reasonable humans recognizing reliable proof. It becomes harder and harder to argue that you must sacrifice a pigeon to the Seattle rain gods in order to avoid catastrophic drought when you've run out of pigeons and it never stops raining. Listen, that's all I'm asking of you is question any story told you when you were a child that you still believe. You aren't going to live forever anyway, so inquire. Then research them to see if there's any actual historical validity. It seems simple enough. Better yet, if you're a believer and you're still listening, first off, thanks, and I I hope you've enjoyed it. Secondly, please pick up your Bible and open it at the very beginning and start reading it. Let me know when you reach the part where you say to yourself, holy shit, that's brutal. My guess is you won't make it too far. 
maybe not even past Genesis. So what is the evidence that proves beyond reasonable doubt that God created our universe? We have some philosophical posturing and circular reasoning. We have the notion that because stuff is complicated, we are probably too stupid to ever figure it out, so God must have planned it that way. Oh wait, maybe that's my version of some of these arguments. Anywho, I explained in the beginning that the defense doesn't have to prove anything and that the burden is on the believers to present convincing, reliable evidence. So far, nothing. This is where I would expect a chorus of, you can't prove there isn't a God. Of course not. There is no proof that God didn't create the universe. There can't be. Just like, there's no proof that I didn't or you didn't. Just like, there's no proof that werewolves don't exist. To put this in perspective, there's no proof that werewolves do exist. And if your job was to determine whether they do or don't based on an amount of evidence equal to the amount of evidence presented by the believers so far regarding God the Creator, the answer would have to be that werewolves do not exist. Therefore, you simply cannot find that there is proof beyond a reasonable doubt that God created the universe. To borrow from Carl Sagan and what is referred to as the Sagan Standard, Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. We'll continue with the elements next time. Until then, love you. Mean it.